please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 14. Find ourselves in verse 21 this evening, and then working through to chapter 15, verse 6. Title of the sermon, The Subtlety of Rebellion. We're talking about rebellion from a little bit of a different concept, a little bit of a different angle tonight. Normally when we preach a message on rebellion, which we have done several in First and Second Samuel, uh, we're considering rebellion in a personal sense. Tonight I'm not going to be so much teaching you about the danger of rebellion in your own heart, although it is certainly something that can affect you, as much as we'll be considering rebellion from the perspective of leadership. Um, the warning this evening... Will, will be directly in, in regard to the possibility of men who are rebellious seeking to earn your favor and the ways that you can tell that indeed they are rebellious. So we talk about the subtlety of rebellion. Remember where we left off. Uh, we're dealing with Absalom. And last time uh, we saw David confronted by a woman. A woman which the text says is wise. When we look at the word there, wise, it's the same word used of Jonadab in the chapter previously. Uh, of Crafty or subtle would probably be a better word for it. She was employed by Joab as a kind of backdoor way of giving, getting David to listen to him. Of getting his message across to David in a way he thought David would listen. We talked about all the reasons why David may not have been willing to listen to Joab. Maybe because uh, Joab is David's nephew or whatever the case may be. We don't fully know why. But for one reason or another, Joab used this woman to come, presumably to keep David um, off guard or to disarm him. Uh, David sees through the scheme, however, understands that it is indeed Joab that is doing this scheming, uh, but consents to do as Joab asked and to bring Absalom Back And so we saw Absalom come back. However, we read in verses 21 and 22, And the king said to Joab, Behold now, I have done this thing. Go therefore, bring the young man Absalom again. And Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today thy servant knoweth that I have found grace in thy sight, my lord, O king, and that the king hath fulfilled the request to his servant. So David does send Joab to bring Absalom back, for which Absalom is very thankful. Uh, and, and Joab is very thankful as well. Particularly here we see Joab's great thankfulness. He bows himself to the king. He thanks the king that the king had found the mercy and the grace, the grace toward Joab, the mercy toward Absalom to bring Absalom back. And it is interesting, perhaps, that Joab is so interested in getting Absalom back. We don't really know why it is. Uh, it seems as though Joab has a, a deep respect for Absalom. However, that, that deep respect does not run too deep, as we'll find out in a couple of chapters. Uh, it, it was Joab, however, who, uh, directly contrary to David's will, deceitfully killed Abner in revenge for his brother's death. So Joab may have, uh, in a manner of speaking, related a little bit to Absalom. He may have related to Absalom wanting to kill his half-brother for raping Tamar. He may have respected Absalom for this step, for this decision. And so he thought Absalom would make a great next king. He is now next in line to the throne. There is a, a brother in between Abner or um, Amnon and Absalom, but we read nothing of him throughout the whole of the scripture other than when it's, that his birth is listed. And so we don't know where he is, but it seems as though Joab thought 
Absalom would be next to the king, to the, to the throne. That is specifically why we would believe, um, he said that David was doing a disservice to the whole of the nation by keeping Absalom in exile. So it seems as though, and then also we understand that Joab and Absalom are cousins, right? So there's, there's some family ties, and there may be a respect here for a man who Joab thought, here's a man with enough gumption to do what he thinks needs to be done, just like when Joab killed Abner. We continue in verses 23 and 24 and we read this. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. Joab arises, he goes and he gets Absalom. However, notice the condition upon which David allows this. He is not willing to have Absalom be presented before him. By this, David is showing mercy in allowing Absalom to come back to Israel, but he is simultaneously maintaining his disapproval for Absalom and his actions. In a manner of speaking, Absalom is still in exile from the king. He has not been presented to the king. He, he is not in existence in a manner of speaking for the king. It's possible that by, by leaving Absalom in this partial state of exile, he felt justified in not fulfilling his kingly duty of demanding uh, Absalom's execution for the blatant and premeditated murder of his half-brother. We don't exactly know why. David saw fit to leave him in this sort of half-exile. But there is little doubt that Absalom, while happy to be out of exile, was not happy that he was still not restored to the king. There was still an obvious strain between him and the king. And his pride, in his pride at the very least, this was unacceptable to Absalom. Now, at this point, we get to consider a little bit more about who Absalom is. And this is going to be important as we continue through the text. In verse 25, we read this. But in all Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. So we mentioned several weeks ago, and we've mentioned several times, that Absalom was a fine specimen of a man. The text calls him a beautiful man. Now, my, my daughters would take exception to this description of him. They always tell me girls are beautiful and boys are handsome. So we'll just call him a handsome man this evening. The Bible says that from, the, from his foot to his head, there was no blemish in him. The guy had it all. He was probably big, tall, strong, beautiful, uh, he just, he had it all. And he knew it. We continue reading in verse 26. And when he pulled his head, for it was at every year's end that he pulled it, because the hair was heavy on him, therefore he pulled it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. And the word pulled here is a word that we don't really use much anymore, but it means to cut off. The guy got one haircut per year at the end of the year. And the text says that he got that haircut at the end of the year every year because his hair was getting too heavy on him. This means that his hair didn't just get long in that year. It grew fast, but it didn't just get long. It must have been thick. If it was so heavy at the end of one year's growth, having it cut every year, 
that it was too heavy for him to function the way he wanted to function. It must have come in long, and it must have come in thick. So every year they cut his hair and they would weigh it at the end of that year. And the text says that it would weigh in at 200 shekels after the king's weight. Now the common shekel, in, in the measurement of a common shekel, that would mean six pounds of hair. That seems extremely unlikely that there would ever be six pounds of hair grown in a year. Uh, no one really knows what a king's shekel was, but most people believe that it was at most a half of a normal shekel, maybe even been a third of a normal shekel. If we're looking at half of a normal shekel, then that is only three pounds of hair. If we're looking at a third of a, of a normal shekel, that's two pounds of hair, and that is far more reasonable. Some would say, well, that's still a bit much for one year's worth of growth. Um, well, the Bible says it. And other people have given some other theories that maybe that was including, uh, at the time it was popular for the rich young people of the day to put gold specks in their hair and to gl- and make their hair glisten and such, and maybe it was with the gold specks or whatever the case may be. Either way, the Bible says it. That every year it was pulled, and it was pulled at 200 shekels after the king's weight, we might assume anywhere from 2 to 3 pounds of hair every year. This guy was a, was, was a freak show. I mean, the guy could grow some hair. And the scriptures say that he was a handsome guy. And that's what that, that's what these two verses are trying to show us. The guy was a physical specimen of physical specimens. And he also had a beautiful family. We find in verse 27, unto Absalom there were born three, three sons and one daughter. And interesting, what did he name his daughter? Tamar. She was a woman of fair countenance. So he had three boys and a girl. The text is careful to mention only his daughter's name here, Tamar, after his sister, who was now living with him in the shame for her half-brother's rape of her. And the text tells us that she was a very beautiful woman. So, that's more on Absalom. He was a great-looking guy. He had great-looking children. And he knew that he was in, he was, uh, in a good place. And the Scriptures tell us in verse 28, So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. Absalom is back in Israel for two years without being allowed to see the king. It's been five years then. Three years in Gesher, two years in Israel, in Jerusalem. Five years since he has seen his father, the king. And Absalom is sick of it. He has had enough. So we read in verse 29, Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to have him to have sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So Absalom sends to Joab. He wants Joab to go to the king. Joab got him here to Jerusalem. Surely Joab can get him to be seen by the king. So he sends for Joab. Joab doesn't come to him. It says that that, that Joab would not come to him. Maybe at this point Joab said, Hey, the rest is your. I got you here. The rest is yours. Maybe at this point, Joab was beginning to lose some respect for Absalom. We don't know why Joab wouldn't come further. Maybe he was busy. But for whatever reason, he didn't come. Absalom tries again. Calls for him. Joab would not come again. Absalom is a very proud man. He's a very entitled man. He, he seems to not take rejection very well. So he does what any rational man would do in this situation. He burns down Joab's fields. Verse 30, Therefore he said unto his servant, See, Joab's field is near mine. 
and he have barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. So uh, Absalom go, uh, sends his servants to go into the field, burns Joab's barley to the ground. He gets Joab's attention, and indeed it works. Verses 31 and 32. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king, to say, Wherefore am I come to Gesher? It has been good for me that I have been there still. Now therefore let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. Joab comes to ask Absalom and naturally asks him, Look, why did you just burn my barley down? Absalom says, Because I wanted you. I have an errand for you and you wouldn't listen to me. That's entitlement if you've ever seen it. Go to the king, he says. Ask why he brought me back from Geshur at all if I'm not allowed back into the royal family. In a manner of speaking, he then dares David. He says, Look, either pardon me for killing my half-brother or kill me but don't leave me in this state. Well, this request, though gone about in a very proud way, is actually somewhat reasonable. David is avoiding conflict here at the expense of solving conflict, and that is a problem. In my opinion, David should have just allowed his son to die for his sin. We read in verse 33, however, So Joab came to the king and told him, And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed, himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Joab goes to the king. The king agrees to see Absalom and not to kill him. Absalom comes to the king. They officially reconcile. This is official kingly reconciliation. And then the king kisses Absalom. Absalom bows before the king. It's all good now. We move directly into chapter 15. A few more verses of exposition. This is Absalom's full restoration back into the kingdom. In verse, in chapter 15 though, things are going to change. Absalom is now reconciled with the king. He has the freedom to move about. Uh, he receives restoration of his reputation in the kingdom. Uh, people recognize he's on uh, good standing with his father. Everything is fine. They're going to regard him again. He's back in line uh, for the kingly line. But it seems as though his desire to reconcile with the king may not necessarily all have been based on simply the relationship he had with him. It seems as though Absalom needed his relationship to be right with the king so that the people would see him with favor so that he could rebel instead of openly, he could rebel subtly. And so we read in chapter 15 verse 1. It came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and fifty men to run before him. At some point after their reconciliation, Absalom gets together chariots and horses, fifty men that run before him in a royal procession. This would have been impressive. The, the chariots, we don't read of David riding in a chariot ever. As a matter of fact, we, we mostly hear him hear of him riding on donkeys. And there are times where we would see horses... But we don't see chariots. Absalom is in this chariot and he has his horses and he has a procession of 50 people in front of him and he's making this big show. Far from enjoying the reconciliation with his father, far from seeking now the favor of the father who has pardoned him from death, which he without question deserved, his pride is only increasing. He's beginning to feel like he's bulletproof. He killed a man. He got away with it. He fled to Gesher. Grandpa took care of him. He comes back. 
He's pardoned by the king. He's a, a, a big man. He's a, a handsome man. He's, everything's going well for him. And it becomes clear at this point that Absalom's ambitions go well beyond simply being the king's son and rests upon receiving the kingdom for himself. He seems to have no regard for the king's position as leader of God's kingdom. He sees his dad as a king like any other king. He doesn't see the king like David saw the king Saul. David saw king Saul and he said, This is the Lord's anointed. I dare not touch him. But Absalom seems to be seeing his father David as simply another king. He doesn't seem to regard him as the Lord's anointed. He doesn't seem to have any interest in doing things God's way, of waiting on God's timing. His pagan mother and his pagan grandfather, the king of Geshur, both of whom were Syrians, had perhaps drawn his heart away from the truths of Israel toward the pagan ideals of overthrowing kingdoms and the will to power. He sees himself as superior to everyone, including his father, and so sees himself as the natural leader, the leader which the nation deserves. David is weak. David is passive. I'm the leader the nation deserves. I'm strong. Little did he regard the words that perhaps his father had shared with him at some point, that when God was looking for the anointed king in Israel, Samuel looked at David's seven brothers and said, These are good, strong, tall, handsome men. Surely one of these men must be the Lord's anointed. They're men of, they're men of beauty. They're men of stature. And yet God rested upon David, telling Samuel that while man looks on the outward appearance, God looks upon the heart. But Absalom is arrayed in beauty. He's arrayed in strength. And somehow he thinks in his carnal mind that that's enough. So he surrounds himself in more strength. Horses, chariots, and men. And he parades himself with splendor. Verse 2 says, And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy, came to the king for judgment. Then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he he said, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. So Absalom takes his royal procession and arrives, the Bible says, at the way of the gate. Now the text doesn't tell us specifically what gate this is. It would seem natural, since we do not know what gate it is, to assume that it is the gate in Jerusalem... We can't know that for, for sure, but, but it would seem, that would seem logical. Regardless of what city it was, the gate of the city was the place where everything happened, where business was transacted, where judgment was done. That's where the, the government was. If, if we were to think about the gate of the city today, that might be our city and county building. Uh, it would be the place where there were court cases, where there were business filings, uh, where, where government business was done, where the, where the leaders of the city congregated, where everything would happen. It was the place where decisions were made for the city and where the men of influence resided. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you've been reading the news, but they just 
did some more excavation on the gate of the city of Lachish, which was one of the grandest cities in the time of, the, of King Hezekiah. And they found some incredible things there. I'd encourage you to look it up if uh, you are not familiar with it already and see all of the interesting things they found that confirmed the biblical accounts that took place during the time of Hezekiah at the gate of Lachish. An 80 by 80 huge gate there where all of the business would have been transacted. So Absalom comes to this gate and sees men in need of judgment. They're looking to the elders of the city to make these decisions. They're looking for someone to judge between right and wrong. Maybe their neighbor built a fence on their land. Maybe um, maybe uh, one of their neighbor's dogs uh, hurt one of their cattle or or uh, we don't know all of the different things that that could that could need civil judgment. And with every man that would come, Absalom would ask him, "What city are you from, friend?" And the text implies this, with this general phrase, "Thy servant is from one, is one of the tribes of Israel," that they would tell them their where they were from, their tribe affiliation, and such. They would say, "I'm I'm from here. I'm from there." Uh, it would have been the region surrounding this city, a large enough city to have a gate, a large enough city to have judges, and they would have come from those smaller rural areas to be judged at the gate. And um, Absalom would then reply in verses 3 and 4, See thy matters are good and right. But there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come to me, and I would do him justice. He flattered the people. They came. They're looking for judgment. They're just going to come to the elders of the city when the elders have time. There is nobody necessarily deputed to do that job. It's just the elders when they could. They were looking for a wise man, a leader, to help them make these decisions. And he says, your matters, they're good and they're right, and you deserve your time. You deserve to be heard, to have a man appointed to judge your causes. Then he states the injustice and the disappointment that he was not made the judge over the land because he is a man of the people and he wants justice. He wants everybody to have justice. He's a man of the people. What a terrible thing it is if only he could be the judge. If he were the leader of the people, the ultimate judge, everything would be so much better. Conflicts would be immediately resolved and of course, always in everyone's favor. Absalom is pitching himself as the solution to the problems in the land. The only thing standing between the people and their happiness, Absalom seems to be saying, is the want of a strong leader. He is seeking to steal the loyalty of the people. He's seeking to make them discontented with their leadership in order that he might step into place. If that sounds familiar, that's exactly what's happening in politics right now. That's exactly the game that's constantly being played. Be discontent with the leaders that you have so that I can have the power. I want the power, so be discontent with, with the people that have the power now so that I can have the power. And then when those people get into power, things don't get better. They just start using the power for their ends. And then the other side says, Ah, be discontent with the people that are in power. 
I want the power. And it's just this silly cycle of people wanting power and claiming power for themselves. And that's exactly what Absalom is doing here. You can see how obvious it is with him. We can see how obvious it is in our own political system. This is obvious, but the people love it. Verses 5 and 6. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do obeisance, oh, this is good, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this matter did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So these people are coming to the king and Absalom stops them and says, I'll give you judgment here. I'm the king's son. Oh, that I was given this position. Oh, that I could do this. Every man would have justice. And when they came to do him obeisance, when they came and they kneeled down before him as the king's son, he would say, no, no, no. And he'd take their hand and he would lift them up and he would kiss them. A true man of the people. No, don't do obeisance to me. I'm just like you. I'm a man of the people. And so through flattery, Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. We stop there for our exposition today. Just two points of application for ourselves this evening. One of them, the final point, will have to do with the rebellion, the the topic, the title of our message. But this first point has to do with David. And this point is actually in some ways the longer of the two points. The first thing I'd like us to consider this evening, and this is an important one for us, so please do get this. We should always seek to avoid conflict. But we should never avoid dealing with conflict. You know, there's a difference between avoiding conflict and avoiding dealing with conflict. David avoided conflict with his son by avoiding his son. The conflict was there, but he avoided dealing with it, excuse me, by avoiding his son. The conflict had taken place by no choice of David's. Absalom had killed Amnon. Now David might have been able to change that if he'd have done right by uh, uh, Tamar to begin with. But Absalom kills Amnon. Now there's a natural problem. There's a natural divide. There's a natural conflict. And David started avoiding dealing with it. He allowed Absalom to remain in Gesher rather than deal with the fact that his son was a murderer. Joab's frustration that reveals itself in that object lesson we learned about last week in verses 1-20 through is not necessarily that David would have to judge his son, but that David is not doing anything. This is the same frustration that Absalom himself voices when he calls to, for Joab to talk to his dad two years later. Absalom says, I've been in Jerusalem for two years and my dad is just avoiding me. Let's get this dealt with. Now, we don't want conflict. No one who is led by the Spirit wants conflict. We all know people who love conflict. They seek conflict. They desire conflict. They're drawn to conflict. They, they desire drama. They love drama. They, they, if they don't have conflict, they go stir up conflict. We know people like that. But if you're led by the Spirit of God, you don't want conflict. A couple of weeks ago, we considered this verse. Paul writes in Romans twelve eighteen, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. We ought to be living peaceably with men. We ought to seek 
peace. But here's the thing. Avoiding conflict is not the same as avoiding dealing with conflict. To avoid dealing with conflict that already exists is little more than to live in denial, to keep oneself and others in a state of emotional captivity, and oftentimes it simply makes the problem worse. David could just will this situation into peace. Amnon chose, he couldn't just just will this situation to peace. He couldn't just say, we will have peace here. Amnon chose to rape David's daughter. Absalom chose to murder Amnon. David didn't choose these things. His sons did. But David is their father and he is their king. And he avoids them. He avoided the conflict with Absalom, I mean with Amnon, between himself and Amnon. And he avoided the conflict between himself and Amnon for two full years. So that Absalom said, Dad's doing nothing, I'll take it into my own hands. And Amnon was murdered. Now, the conflict with Amnon is over because Amnon is dead. And David avoids the conflict with his son Absalom. And it's going to lead to the overthrow of the kingdom. Absalom is a murderer. David is his father, king, and is responsible for justice. But instead of seeking justice, David ignored it. And while it is always right for us to seek to avoid conflict, it is never right for us to avoid dealing with conflict that is already out there. To avoid dealing with conflict doesn't make the conflict goes away. It only makes the conflict fester like an infection. And that can bring the thing that we warned you about two weeks ago. Resentment. How much better to be open, to be honest, to clear it out. Avoiding open conflict might be the easy way, but it's not right. Our privilege to live before every man's conscience is to do so in peace. That doesn't mean the conflict will necessarily be resolved, but if it isn't, let it not be because we are unwilling to deal with it or because of our pride. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Love. But not just love, but a particular manner of love. Out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, and out of unhypocritical faith. When you look into the eyes of any man or woman, you ought to have a clean conscience toward them. Does that mean you won't have any conflict with them? No. But it ought to be that you can look them in the eye because as far as you're concerned, you've done everything you can to foster peace. And if you are avoiding a conflict that is already out there, if you are avoiding dealing with a conflict that has already taken place, then you cannot look a person, that person in the eye in a clear conscience and say, you've done all you can. If there's conflict, it ought to be, it ought not be because you haven't done your part to get it right, to clear the air, to show love, to seek peace. Such actions will not mean, however, that everybody likes us. In fact, First Peter warns that people will speak evil against us for righteousness' sake. 
all throughout history. We even talked about it in Sunday school this morning. Christians have been regarded as the worst people in society. Called hate mongers for standing against sin. Called rebellious for our loyalty to God above man. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 14-16, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other man's matters. If conflict must come, Peter said, let it only come as the byproduct of righteousness. If conflict must remain, let it remain not because we've avoided dealing with it, but because we have done everything in our power to handle it, but the other party would not. Let us be able to look into the eyes of any man and every man and do so with a clear conscience that we have not brought conflict through sin, through unrighteousness, or through ignorance, but that we have dealt with every conflict we can, that we have done all things in righteousness, that any conflict that arises, arises along those lines, and that we have a pure conscience about it. So we should always seek to avoid conflict, but never avoid dealing with conflict. David avoided dealing with conflicts that already came to pass, and because of it, in my opinion at least, Amnon died and Absalom rebelled. But point number two, and this is our final point, though we'll consider it in two, two parts. Beware of men seeking power in the name of the people. This point transitions to thoughts about Absalom. Absalom was a man who sought to portray himself as a man of the people. And he did so for a particular reason. He did so so that with flattery he could win the hearts of the people. People in every age are quite the same. They want to feel like their leaders care about them. They want to believe that their leaders have their best interests in mind. They want to be heard. They want to be regarded. And that's not a bad thing. They want to feel like they're more than just a body or a number or, 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 or a tax bracket. They want to be treated like they are human, like they're living souls. And leaders don't always do very well at this. Power, by its nature, tends to bring wealth and tends to bring privilege. And apart from a regard for a higher power than himself, namely, apart from the conviction that a leader is under God, and that he is not entitled, but rather responsible to God as the king of kings, the allure of leadership is truly an allure to power. So Absalom comes to present himself as a man of the people. A man who has their ear, who wants to serve them, who wants to empower them. And the people were rightly encouraged by this. But in their excitement they failed to be cautious. They were excited about a man who spoke what they wanted to hear. Who talked like they thought. Does that sound familiar? We're going through that in our election right now. The Republican candidate is a man who has been brought through the primaries to candidacy because he says out loud what a lot of people say in their heads, but they won't say out loud because it's indecent. Because it's, it's unkind. Because it's pr- crazy. Preposterous. And that's that same idea. A man of the people. A man that's like the people. A man willing to say what the people hear. But they failed to be cautious. They failed to think that through the manner in which Absalom was going about seeking to empower himself through the people. Seeking to bring the people up. 
He was doing so at the expense of God's commands, of God's will, of God's way, of God's righteousness. He was literally standing against the Lord's anointed in the name of the people. And the people didn't stop to consider, wait a minute. This is what we want. We want someone that will listen to us. We want someone who will treat us with respect. But what about somebody who will do it God's way? Do you remember, David, how he ran in the wilderness for years, not killing Saul, even though Saul, he had, he had chances to do so? And he did that not because he didn't have the opportunity, not because he, he didn't want to stop running. He did so because he loved God and God had anointed Saul. The people didn't stop to think that Absalom was, what Absalom was doing here was not just rebellion against King David, it was rebellion against God. And this brings us to the second half of our point. Beware of men seeking power in undermining, uh, in, in, in the name of the people by undermining the authority of rightful leaders. Beware of men seeking power in the name of the people through rebellion. David was the Lord's anointed. David refused to do anything that would undermine the authority of the God-ordained king, King Saul. He had chances to steal away the heart of the people and he didn't do it. The people, their heart was won to David not through rebellion, not through undermining the authority of God's ordained leader, but much rather through the opposite, through submission. He won the hearts of God's people by doing right by the king. By honoring the king's authority and position. And by allowing God to be the one to put him into power. A leader who honors the people when he's rightly trying to honor the people is a wonderful thing. Now Absalom wasn't doing that. Absalom was pretending to honor the people for the sake of power. And this is the problem with power. Every single evil leader over the past century has risen to power in the name of the people, haven't they? Hitler rose to power in the name of the people. Russia fell to communism in the name of the people, as did North Korea, as did China, as did Cuba. They fell under dictator rule. Millions, tens of millions of people killed in the name of a person who said, I am a man of the people. But what were they truly seeking? Power. They're seeking, they, they, they came up on the premise of power, of rebellion, even in the name of the people. When a leader seeks to bring about the promises of the people through unrighteous means, there is something wrong. All throughout history, evil men have arisen to leadership through the promise of a better tomorrow for the people. It's the only way they can get the support they need. But by their fruit, you will know them. Absalom might have had all the good intentions in the world. He might have even truly believed he could do a better job than his father. But in his haste for justice, for right, for the people, he abandoned principle. And if a leader will abandon principle for the people, what will stop him from abandoning principle for himself away from the people when it becomes expedient. And of course this is the problem in our election. Two people claiming that they are 
both for the people, both of whom have no principles, neither of whom would be at all troubled to renege on any promise or any statement they've made. We dare not become duped by such shallow leaders. We, we ought to beware. This is the subtlety of power over principle, of rebellion, that a man or a woman will do wrong to bring about right. And what will later stop that person from doing wrong to bring about some other end? Now I have, to a small degree, applied this principle to the politics of the day, just because. But you know, as a whole, applying it to the politics of the day does disservice to this point, doesn't it? No outcome in the November election, at least as it pertains to our land's highest office, will avoid an evil tyrant being placed in that office. No leader in this conflict is anywhere near righteous or anywhere near principled. And while one or, or several of them may be used by God in this land for ill or for good, none of them will be a righteous leader unless some miraculous or dramatic thing takes place in their lives and their perspective deeply changes, which is not beyond God, by the way. But let's put this concept where it really matters. Let's go beyond the insignificance of the November election and let's think about our lives. Let's think about spiritual things. Let's think about our church. Let's think about our family. God has ordained leaders. And while the reality of God-ordained leadership in no way means that those leaders are doing what is right or are pleasing God or even good at what they do, whether they be government officials, church leaders, fathers or mothers, they are still God-ordained leaders. And while there is a time and a place for leadership to change and for evil to be sent to the, to the, the dark corners of society, for, for evil to be cast out of a church, for evil to be removed from a family, it is essential that you and I trust that God will do it His way let us not be numbered among those who would support rebellion for leadership. Ever. Let us not be numbered among pragmatists who would call for rebellion against authority as long as the expected end of that rebellion would be virtue. For indeed, as a person is, as a person's fruit, that is what they are. By their fruit you will know them. Rebellion might bring about virtuous circumstances in the long run, but at what cost? Because evil does not produce good. We could go to Romans 13. We could go to 1 Peter 2. We could go to Ephesians 6. We could go to Colossians 3. I could remind you in all of these that God would have you submit to the rightful authorities of your law in your lives, be it government leaders, be it parents, be it employers. We've talked about these many times at Legacy Baptist Church, especially in our Sunday school hour, and we will continue to talk about them as, the, as it's appropriate. But let us be mindful of the one time when God sanctions the undermining of our earthly authorities, and the only time God's blessing undergirds 
rebellion against authority. And that being when our earthly authorities would ask us to disobey God's authority. In that case, we say we ought to obey God rather than man. Apart from that, there is no example in the Bible of God-approved rebellion. And if a person is seeking to compel rebellion outside of righteousness, especially with the desire of putting himself into the place of the authority, you should beware. And that was Absalom. But the people were not careful. And in their indiscretion, their hearts were won by the rebel. May we guard ourselves from the same fate. See, because God hates rebellion. And rebellion is often a very subtle thing. We have a deep necessity, therefore, that we would be careful. Rebellion is at the heart of the human condition. But it is the very part of the human condition which caused the fall and the curse to sin. Absalom was a rebellious man and he was therefore a dangerous man. His efforts sought to undermine God-given authority and they were therefore unrighteous. And, of course, there is no such thing as let us do evil that good may come in God's economy. But you know what? Absalom sure looked good, didn't he? He sure sounded good, didn't he? He sure did good things, didn't he? God help us to be to see beyond a man that looks good, a man that talks good, a man that does those good things to see his principle. God help us to see beyond the immediate, to see beyond the superficial, and to see the biblical principles which undergird them. Let's close in prayer.